appreciate the effort Brother Tim has made this morning in speaking on this extremely important subject. It's a subject that needs to be rightly divided, and I feel like he was blessed to do that today. Justification by blood is one thing. Justification by faith and justification by works is entirely different. Uh, the Lord's people all will be in heaven one day, as he spoke earlier, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's justification by blood. When you come to an understanding of that, it brings a peace to your heart and soul, which gives you justification by faith in your mind and conscience. And that should translate into a godly life to honor the Lord. And therefore, in the court of public opinion, you're justified by works. It's one of the easiest ways I know to, to grasp that important subject and understand the three different aspects of it. And appreciate Brother Tim sharing those thoughts with us this morning. I'd like to speak to you this morning on one of the most important men in the Bible, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's a man by the name of Moses. Moses is recorded 80 times in the New Testament, although he's an Old Testament character. Moses is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ in numerous ways. In fact, as I was sitting there on the pew as we were singing, I began to uh, run through my mind a number of the ways I feel like that Moses is a type of Christ and I came up with at least 15 or 16 of them and I hope that we can maybe see some of those as we speak to you this morning. But Moses has been on my mind in the last four or five different days. Uh, I was mowing the grass earlier this week and uh, I just read Deuteronomy 31, 32 and 33 and 34. And as you start Deuteronomy 31, you find where Moses comes before the people of God, the nation of Israel, and he tells them his age. Now, a lot of people don't like to tell their age, but Moses didn't seem to mind. He said, I'm 120 years old today. He said, I'm no longer able to go in and go out among the people. He says, I'm just not able to do that. And he says, the Lord has showed me that I shall not go into the land of Canaan. Now, the reason he couldn't go into the land of Canaan, of course, is because the second time that God was going to bring water out of a rock, he told Moses to speak to the rock. On an earlier occasion, Moses was told of God to smite the rock and water would come out. And Moses did. He smote the rock. And out of that rock came enough water to take care of the needs of well over a million people. Now, just think about that for a minute. I don't know how big the rock was. It doesn't matter. It could have been a pebble. Uh, he could have brought water out of a, a, a small rock or a huge boulder. But he told him to smite that rock, and he did in obedience, and water came out. Later, when Israel was very thirsty in the wilderness, and began to murmur, the Lord tells Moses to go and speak to that rock. And again, water would come out, but Moses went and smote the rock the second time. He was upset with the people because they're murmuring and complaining. He says, must I fetch water out of this rock for you, O rebels? Called them rebels, which they were, but it wasn't Moses' place to declare that. And Moses' actions, his words and his actions was simply the energy of the flesh. It wasn't of God. But God showed his mercy and compassion because God still allowed water to come out of that rock and took care of the needs of the people. But he told Moses and Aaron that they would not go into the land of promise. They would not go into the land of Canaan. And I remember a number, many years ago in reading this, it just seemed like that was, to me, that was somewhat harsh when you consider everything Moses had to put up with. But 
Brother Tim read to us from Deuteronomy 32, 4. These are the words of Moses. He said, just and right is he. Moses believed that God was just in whatever his decision was. He might not have understood it, but he knew that God was just. Just and right is he, a God of truth and without iniquity. And so I was reading those last four chapters. As I was mowing the grass, I try to use a lot of different opportunities to meditate. I try to meditate on the scripture as I, when I go to bed, helps me go to sleep. I try to meditate on the scriptures after I wake up, before I ever get up. Uh, those are good times for me. And so mowing the grass, I might as well meditate on the scripture, right? What, what else can I do while I'm mowing that grass? <laughs> but anyway, uh, of course, there's a difference in meditation and daydreaming. Some people specialize in daydreaming instead of meditating. And sometimes it's hard to tell which a person is doing. But anyway, I can assure you there's more profit in meditating than it is in daydreaming. And as I began to go over the life of Moses, uh, I went back to Exodus chapter 2. And here we find a description of the birth of Moses. But in Deuteronomy chapter 34, we have a description of the death of Moses. And both the circumstances of his birth and the circumstances of his death are pretty interesting and somewhat uh, unique. And so that's what I want to really speak to you about this morning. I want to look at some of the circumstances of the birth of Moses, and I want to take a look at the death of Moses. In a few ways, I believe that Moses is a picture and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you go to the book of Exodus, you'll find in chapter 2 where Moses is born into this world. Now, when he's born in this world, there is a decree that's been put out by Pharaoh that all the male children that are born are to be cast into the Nile River and to be drowned. This is the third attempt by Pharaoh to diminish the numbers of Israel. Go back and read a little earlier in chapter 1, and you'll find that this particular Pharaoh knew not Joseph, who had lived in Egypt a long time before, and God had blessed the land of Egypt for Joseph's sake. But a new Pharaoh has arisen, and he sees Israel as a threat. He sees him multiplying exceedingly, and he says, the day may come when we'll enter into war, and they'll turn against us. They'll join the enemy, and we need to do something about it. So he said, we're going to make them have heavy burdens. And so he told his taskmasters to put a heavy burden upon them, make them serve with great rigor. And he made them build cities, and he made them uh, uh, do hard labor, and they afflicted them. But the thing about it, the more that they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. God intervened. I want you to see a, a picture of God's special providence over this people at this time. The more that they were afflicted, the more God caused them to multiply and grow. And so his problem wasn't solved. His problem got worse. So he decided on another plan. He went to two midwives who are named for us and told them, Whenever the Hebrew women were going to have a child, they were to be there. If it was a male child, they were to kill that male child. If it was a girl, they were to let it live. If it was a male child, it, they were to slay them. But we find out where it says the midwives feared God. And they didn't do like Pharaoh said to do. And so Pharaoh questioned about the matter, and they explained it this way. They said, well, the Hebrew women are more lively than the Egyptian women. And by the time that we get there, they've already had the child, and it's too late. Now, the Bible says that God rewarded those midwives, and he gave them houses. 
And so when I look at that word house, it has a real wide and broad application. A lot of times it can mean family. Just like when Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house, he wasn't talking about a, a physical structure. He was talking about his family. He and seven other members of his family, eight in all, were delivered as Noah obeyed God and prepared that ark. So when he gave those midwives houses, he's talking about giving them families, enabling them to have children. One of the greatest rewards, if you go to Psalms 127, it says, children are an heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. That word heritage means inheritance. Children are one of the most precious gifts that you'll ever receive here in life. James chapter 1 says, Every good and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and there is no variance, neither shadow of turning. I consider, Karen and I consider our four children, and, and of course their families now, to be most, the most precious assets we have. Children are a blessing of the Lord, and yet we live in a day and age where you know, abortion has uh, been legalized in America, and God is extremely displeased with this, I can assure you that. And life is looked at uh, in a manner and way that's very displeasing to the Lord. And so we find these midwives are rewarded by God. So Pharaoh comes up with another plan. Now he tells all the Egyptians, all of you to be spies, so to speak, and you'd have noticed when the Hebrew women have children, if it's a male child, you'd have drowned that male child in the Nile River. Well, we find where Moses is born of parents of the tribe of Levi. And I go over here to the 11th chapter in the book of Hebrews, and I find it says that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents who were not afraid of the king's commandment. So this tells me something about his parents here. It says they saw he was a goodly child, a proper child, meaning there's something out of the ordinary about this child, something special about this child. God in his providence enabled them to see this. And so they have the child, and they hide the child for three months. But after three months, he's no longer able to be hid, so his mother makes an ark of bulrushes and puts Moses in the ark of bulrushes and puts him down into the Nile River. And then his sister, which is Miriam, they already had two children, Aaron and Miriam. Aaron was three years older than Moses, and Miriam was older than Moses. And his sister Miriam is standing afar off watching to see what's going to take place here. And we find where Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river to bathe. Now this is a very, this is a very critical time. This is a powerful woman here. Uh, she has a lot of authority. And she hears the baby weeping. And the Lord uses the tears of a child, the tears of a three-month-old child, to move the heart of this woman right here. You know, we're told in the book of Proverbs, chapter 21, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and he turned it whatsoever desireth as the rivers of water. Uh, that's why you need to be praying for everybody that's in a position of authority on a local, state, and federal basis. Because no matter who they are, whether you voted for them or not, God can intervene and God can overrule and God can intervene in such a manner and way that he can touch their minds and hearts to make decisions, be faithful to God's people, and they won't even realize what they're doing. He's able to do that. So God uses a tear of a little baby, three months old, and Pharaoh's daughter has compassion on it, and she sends her maids down there to fetch it. She could have said, this is a Hebrew child, a Hebrew 
male child, son, and my father's commandment is to be drowned. She could have sent those maidens down there to drown Moses, but she didn't because the Lord is watching after this boy. He's got great plans for this boy, for this man. And so she takes it and Miriam, his sister, who's standing far off, she arrives on the scene and she says to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I fetch a Hebrew maid to nurse it? Now Pharaoh's daughter does not know this is Moses' sister. Somebody says, that was a great coincidence, wasn't it? Uh, no, it wasn't a coincidence, it's providence. The providence of God, the miraculous, amazing providence of God. She says, yes. And Miriam runs and gets her mother, which is Moses' mother, and brings her down there, which Pharaoh's daughter does not know who she is. And she tells Moses' mother to nurse the child, and she'll even give her wages to do it. Now, when you see how God's providence works in this situation right here, it's just an amazing thing, isn't it? God is a God of providence. That means God provides. God can do things and bring things in your direction, in your way that you never could. And just like he's taking care of Moses right here, as Moses is born, uh, it's nothing out of the ordinary about his conception, but everything that happened to him after that is out of the ordinary. And so she takes, uh, she nurses her for a while, and then she brings him to Pharaoh's daughter, and now she claims him to be her son. The Bible tells us when Moses uh, came to years, and as you study Moses' life, you'll find that it'd be 40 years of age. And I want you to remember something here this morning. Moses lived to be 120. And his life of 120 is divided into three 40-year stages. The first 40 years, he'll spend it in the land of Egypt. He'll spend it as Pharaoh's daughter there. And uh, look back in Acts chapter 7, and you'll find where Stephen tells us that Moses was learned in all the Egyptians' wisdom. He had all the benefits of the wisdom of Egypt. And uh, the Egyptians in that day had great astronomers. They came up with one of, the most, one of the most accurate calendars that man's ever had. They had great engineers and architects. They built structures such as the pyramids that still stand today and have baffled people for centuries is how they did it. Moses grew up in Egypt and had access to this type of information, this type of education. Uh, he was mighty in deed and he was mighty in words. He has a very responsible position, being groomed, no doubt, for greater things as time went on. But the age of 40, Moses goes out one day and he sees an Egyptian and that Egyptian is abusing an Israelite or a Hebrew, beating the Hebrew, oppressing the Hebrew. And Moses intervenes and defended him. And in so doing, Moses winds up slaying the Egyptian. He buries the Egyptian in the sand, thinking nobody has seen it, nobody knows it other than that one Israelite. We see here that Moses, this tells me something about Moses being a very courageous man. And uh, Moses went to see his people. Moses understands that he may be called son of Pharaoh's daughter, but he's not an Egyptian, he's a Hebrew. The next day he goes out and he sees two Hebrews at strife with each other, not getting along, and he tries to mediate the situation. And they turn on him. And they ask him the question, Who hath made thee a ruler and a judge over us? 
Wilt thou slay us, or the one that was uh, being the oppressor? Will you slay me like you slew this Egyptian yesterday? Now Moses realized what he did yesterday has not been hid. It is open. And the news comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh now is going to make an effort to take the life of Moses. So Moses has to flee. And Moses flees to the backside of a desert to a land called Midian. This takes us into Exodus chapter 3. What I've said so far is found in the first two chapters. He's on the backside of a desert where he will live the next 40 years of his life. A tremendous contrast. The first 40, he has everything money can buy, so to speak. He lives in a palace. The next 40, he's going to keep sheep as a shepherd on the backside of a desert. He goes from a palace to the wilderness, from the palace to the pastor, so to speak. But he's going to get another kind of education. He's going to get an education that only he could get by the hand of God on the backside of that desert watching over sheep. Sheep can be very stubborn. Sheep can be very obstinate. Sheep need care. They're pretty much defenseless. And Moses later on is going to have to take care of a people that's referred to in the scripture as sheep who were very obstinate and they were very stubborn. Moses is going to learn a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons of life on the backside of that desert. That's his second 40-year period of time. Now, at the end of that 40 years, he's now 80. And I'm going to believe that he's now in the prime of his life. So that tells me that I've still got a few years left before I get into the prime of my life. Okay? Uh, I mean, let's just see what Moses does. He's 80 years old. And one day he's watching over those sheep. And there's a bush over here. And that bush all of a sudden is on fire. But it's not being consumed. And a voice of an angel comes out of that bush and says, Moses, take your feet off, shoes off your feet for the ground you stand on is holy ground. And the Bible says that Moses feared. I'm sure you would have. I'm sure I would have as well. And he takes his shoes off his feet because he is on holy ground. And that's what makes the ground holy in any situation is the presence of God. This can be an ordinary place or this can be a holy place. When the Lord makes himself known and manifests himself and we can feel his presence, it becomes a holy place, you see. So the Lord speaks to him out of this burning bush. Now this burning bush, I think, is going to represent a couple different things to us. First of all, the children of Israel are down in the land of Egypt that God calls a furnace. He calls it a, a furnace over the book of Deuteronomy. A furnace where a fire is. Israel's down in the land of Egypt and they're in a great affliction. So he sees, I believe, his people down in Egypt that's in great affliction at this time. But also, seeing this bush burning without being consumed, I think is a picture of Moses himself in his weakness. He's just as weak as that bush is there, apart from God. But on the inside of that bush, you might say, is this fire, but it's not consuming the bush. And God's going to use Moses as a weak vessel, as a weak individual, but he's going to empower Moses on the inside by his presence. So he tells Moses, take your shoes off your feet for the ground you stand on is holy ground. He says, I've heard the affliction of my people. I have seen their, their burdens. I've heard their cries. And I'm going to bring them out of the land of Egypt and I'm going to send you down there to do it. Now just think about Moses may have thought. Forty years before he was in Egypt and he had to leave Egypt because his life was on the line. 
And now God tells him he's going to send him back down to Egypt to bring his people out of there. He doesn't tell us the thoughts that Moses had initially about this. But as God tells Moses he's going to send him back there, Moses begins to make excuses why he's not the man to do it. And the first one he comes up with is, who am I? Moses thinks, well, who am I to go down and bring those people out of there? He sees himself as a nobody. He doesn't say anything like, well, I've been waiting 40 years. I was wondering when you was going to tap me. I was wondering when you was going to come to me and say, this is the time. Because when you go back and read in Exodus chapter 2 and the 7th chapter of the book of Acts, when he intervened between the two Hebrews, it says, for he thought his brethren would have known that he was to be the one to deliver them. But see, Moses was like a horse. He was racing ahead and getting ahead of God. But now he's going to be like a mule. He's going to be obstinate and stubborn and not want to go back down there. He says, who am I? In other words, I'm not qualified. I'm weak. I left 40 years ago. I fled out of the land of Egypt 40 years ago. Who am I to go down? But God counters that. God says, certainly I'll be with you. I'll go with you down the land of Egypt. That's one of the most encouraging things that you could ever receive in life is to have the assurance that Almighty God is going to go with you wherever you may be going. Wherever you may be going, you have the assurance in God's word, he'll never leave you nor forsake you, he'll go with you. Well, then Moses says, well, who shall the people, what shall I say to the people who has sent me? They want to know who sent me. And the Lord says, Moses, you tell them that I am, that I am has sent you. That's one of the most significant titles and names of God in the Bible. It's spelled with a capital I and a capital A and a capital M. I am, that I am has sent you. That expression, I am, means that he is eternal and self-existent. The eternal, self-existent God of all creation, of all the universe, has sent you. They'll recognize that when you tell them, I am, that I am, has sent you. Well, as two things Moses is, uh, two of his objections that God has countered, and giving him encouragement. He said, I'll go with you, and you tell them that I am, that I am, have sent you. He said, well, then the third thing, he said, well, the people won't believe me. <laughs> the people won't believe me. And the Lord said, the rod that's in your hand, remember, he's a shepherd. He said, you cast it on the ground. And when he did, it turned into a serpent. He says, now I want you to, and it says, Moses fled. Then he tells Moses, you take it by the tail, so Moses comes back and takes a serpent by the tail, and when he does, it turns back into a rod. He said, now, if they don't believe this sign, I'm going to give them another sign. Take your hand and put it inside your bosom. He does. He pulls it out. It's leprous as white as snow. Put it back in. He put it back in. He pulls it out, and it's pure again. His hand's restored just like it was before. If they don't believe the first sign, they'll believe the second sign. But if they don't believe sign one and sign two, he says, you take some water out of the Nile River and pour it on the ground, it'll be turned into blood. Here are three signs you can give them, and they'll believe that I sent you. So here's his third objection that the Lord is going to counter. He then says, well, I'm not eloquent of speech. In Acts chapter 7, it says that Moses was mighty in word and deed. But he says, I'm not eloquent, Lord. I'm not, uh, I'm not a good speaker. 
And the Lord says, well, you got a brother that is. His name is Aaron. I'm going to send Aaron with you. And he'll be your spokesman. So four times you're going to find where Moses makes an objection. And four times God counters the objection and tells him how those objections are invalid, in other words. I'm going to send you, Moses, back down there. Now, when Moses got to the backside of the desert, let me back up a little bit. When he got to the backside of that desert, when he started to keep those sheep, he met a man by the name of Reuel. And he had seven daughters. And when they came to water their flocks, there were other people there that kind of drove them away. But Moses stood up for them and watered their flocks for them. They went back and told their father about it. He said, well, where's the man at? And they told him, and they invited him to come there. And we find where Moses is going to meet one of his daughters, a woman by the name of Sipporah. And he's going to marry her. He's going to have two sons by her. And so now the Lord tells Moses, take her and your sons and that rod, and you go down to the land of Egypt. And right here in the book of Exodus, chapter 4, is, a, is about four verses of Scripture that I've had this, a question asked me numerous times, what in the world is going on here? And here's what it says. When they came to the way of the inn, when they came to the way of the inn, God met Moses, and the threat of God actually taking Moses' life was put out there in front of him. Now, you wonder, well, why is that? Because when you study this passage out, you'll find where Moses had circumcised his first son, but he hadn't circumcised his second son. And circumcision was a very big deal for the Israelites. God told Abraham, he gave Abraham the law of circumcision. And uh, in the law of circumcision, on the eighth day, the male children were to be circumcised. That was a token of the covenant that God had made with them. Moses had not circumcised his second child for some reason. Uh, the thought, general thought is, is that his wife opposed it. Well, obey, obeying God is the most important thing. And so when God met him, the Bible says to kill him, to oppose him, because Moses had not obeyed God. You're going to find where they took a sharp instrument and circumcised the second son, and she took and said, Thou art a bloody husband unto me. That seems to be all out of place there, unless you understand the law of circumcision. Now both his sons are circumcised. He can't go down to Egypt as God's representative, but one of his sons not circumcised and violate the commandment of God that God gave unto Abraham. He can't do that. And God was not going to allow him to do that. But now he's blessed in going down to Egypt because he's obeyed God. So he goes down there. And we find that he's going to enter in to conversations with Pharaoh. And I'm going to skip all of this here. He enters the conversation with Pharaoh to bring his children out of there. And we know by continuing to read this, that ten plagues are going to be brought upon the false gods of Egypt. And finally, after the tenth plague, which is the death of the firstborn, you're going to find where Pharaoh is going to let his people go. And they come out of Egypt. And they come to the Red Sea. And as they come to the Red Sea, Pharaoh and his army is in hot pursuit to go get them and bring them back. But God tells Moses to hold out his rod toward the Red Sea and tell the people to stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And when Moses does that, the waters part. God sends a strong east wind and the waters part. And Israel crosses the Red Sea dry shod without the loss of one. 
Pharaoh and his army will try to follow pursuit. When they do, God brings the two great walls of water back upon them and drowns them. Now Moses will lead the children of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. Now let's look at those three periods of time in Moses' life just for a moment. The first 40 is down in Egypt. The second 40 is on the backside of the desert. The third 40, he goes back to Egypt, brings the people across the Red Sea into the wilderness on the way to Canaan's land. There's a great contrast in all three of these geographical locations here. Now, I grew up in North Carolina. Grew up in North Carolina. Karen, my wife, grew up in North Carolina. And I stayed there until I was 30 years of age. At the age of 30, I moved to Florida. I lived in Florida for 22 and a half years. After 22 and a half years, I moved to Tennessee. I've lived in three geographical areas in my life. And they're all three different, all those similarities between North Carolina and Tennessee. And after moving to another part of the country and going back, I would have thoughts about the past. I'd have thoughts about the experiences I'd had. And I was thinking the other day, I wonder what Moses thought when he's going back down to Egypt at the age of 80. I wonder what he thought about, you know, 40 years ago, I was uh, in, in the palace in Egypt, and I had the position of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But I had to flee because I was willing to let my identity be known and take it up for my brethren. And as a result, I lost that position. Now I've got to go back down there. And I've said this before, if you would go back 10 years in your life, depending on how old you are today, but you go back 10 years in your life, maybe 20 years in your life, maybe in some cases five, you go back and see where you were at what you were doing, uh, what was going on in your life back then, and then if you were back there and somebody outlined the next 10 or 15 or 20 years of your life, I doubt any of you would believe it. I doubt any of you would believe what the next 10 or 15 or 20 years, if it was outlined just like it's turned out, told you about, would ever believe it. I know that'd be my case. Somebody went back uh, when I was 30 years old and said, now you're 30 years old, but here's what the next 22 years of your life is going to be like. I wouldn't have believed it. That you're going to live in Florida. I said, no, I'm not. I like it right where I'm at. Well, you are. You're going to go to Florida. You're going to have another child in Florida. They're all going to find their spouses in Florida. Uh, no way. That's not going to happen to me. You'd have never made me believe such a thing as that. But see, that's why we to walk by faith and take it a day at a time and let God direct us, let God lead us. As Moses is going back down there, I just tried to imagine what might be going between his ears, going in his mind as to what lay before him and what he had been involved in 40 years before that down there in the land of Egypt. He's probably got pretty used to living out there on the backside of the desert, and I believe he had a lot of communion with God. See, in that backside of the desert back there, he got an education of God. He didn't get down the land of Egypt. He had a lot of time to spend with God. He had a lot of time to lay out under the stars and view the creation of God. He had a lot of time to meditate. He had a lot of time to pray. He had a lot of time to commune with God. And him and God, I don't have any doubt, had a lot of wonderful times together. And he taught Moses some valuable lessons he never could have learned down the land of Egypt. Never could have. So Moses is going back down there at the age of 80. And we now find him at the age of 80 bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt across the Red Sea into the wilderness where they spend the next 40 years 
to bring him into the land of Canaan, but he's not going to get to come into Canaan's land. So we come to that 34th chapter, the last chapter of the book of Deuteronomy. And you're going to find where God reminds him that he's not going to go into the land of Canaan because he failed to sanctify him at that rock I mentioned a little earlier when he disobeyed God, when he failed to sanctify him at that rock. God still brought water out of the rock, but God says, Moses, you're not going into the land of Canaan. But he is going to let Moses see the land of Canaan. He takes him on top of the mountain. He says, now you go to the top of the mountain. He says, I'm going to show you the land and there you will die. And you'll be buried and you'll go to be with your fathers. So Moses goes to the top of that mountain and God gives him a panoramic view of the land of Canaan down there. He shows him the far right, the far left, and everything in between. He says, this is the land I promised to give to the nation of Israel and they shall inherit it. Moses will not enter into it. But God did at least allow him to see it. And then the Bible says that Moses died and then God buried him. Only person in the Bible that God personally took care of his burial. God buried him and says no man knows, knew where God buried him, and no man has known where God buried him since that time. You will find in the book of June where the devil really wanted to know where Moses was buried. And he disputes with Michael the archangel about the body of Moses. We're not told why, but I can assure you if the devil's involved in it, it wasn't for a good reason. So God buries him. He will not enter into Canaan's land. Nobody knows where his sepulcher is. Didn't know it then, hadn't found it since. But it says when he died, his eyes were not dim and his force was not abated. That expression force not abated means that the moisture of his body uh, had not diminished. The older you get, uh, the less moisture your body contains. That's why it gets. Uh, that's why a lot of older people get dehydrated real easily, and it's important to drink enough water. You know, I've always heard in my life that you're supposed to drink eight glasses of water a day, and I found out not too long ago you can drink too much water. So I'd like for them to get the story straight. You know, if I got to drink enough water, but now I got to be concerned about drinking too much water. What's going on here? In other words, what he's saying here about Moses is he looked just as good at 120 as he did at 40. He looked just as good at 120 as he did at 80. Hadn't aged any. Uh, people used to tell me all the time, I hadn't maybe seen him in a year or two, whatever, maybe three or four years, and they said, well, Brother Lawrence, you ain't aged a bit. Man, that made me feel good. They don't say that anymore. I guess I should get the hint, right? <laughs> I wonder where, where's all these compliments I used to get about it. I guess I don't have as much hair and it's not as brown. You know, I, I guess there's too much evidence to deny, right? Just too much evidence to deny. Now they keep saying it to Karen. I don't understand that. <laughs> but anyway, he looked just as good at 120 as he did 40. His eyesight was just as sharp as 120 as it was 40. Well, so what's that tell me? That tells me that God, in a very special manner, a very special way, reached out and blessed this man immeasurably because this man, Moses, was going to bring his people out of there and bring them to the, to the uh, you might say, the shore of the Jordan River and only Joshua will lead them in. Now, for a few minutes I got left here this morning, I'm going to just kind of 
recapture a few thoughts and take a look at a few of the ways that Moses was a picture and type of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Moses was born, he was born to godly parents. His mother and father saw he was a proper child and they hid him three months, not being afraid of the king's commandment. When the Lord Jesus Christ was born, he was born with godly parents. Joseph married with godly parents. I've, had, I've been blessed in more ways than I could ever explain to you here this morning. I've been blessed in more ways than I could ever just come up with. But one of the great blessings in my life is being born into a home of godly parents. My mother and my father were very godly people, God-fearing people, very committed, very faithful to Andrew Primitive Baptist Church where I grew up in. Took me to church faithfully, regularly, every Sunday. There was, when Sunday came, we went to church. They didn't give us no uh, option about it. We didn't hold a vote on Saturday night and say, well, the weather looks pretty good. You want to go fishing tomorrow? You want to go to church? He won't get into all of that. But anyway, they were born to godly parents. When each one was born, Moses and the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a commandment already that existed uh, there where the male children were to be slain. In fact, in Jesus' day, Herod put out a, a commandment that all the, the children in Bethlehem from two years old and under were to be slain. We find the Lord providentially watching over both of them. We find the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 7 that there was no man as meek on this earth as Moses was. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 11, he said, Come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you shall find rest unto your soul. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, for my yoke is easy. If Jesus Christ said, I am meek and I'm lowly. Moses was mighty in word and in deed. In Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ is walking the road to Emmaus with two men, two disciples, and he asked them what they were doing. They said, are you a stranger in this part of the country? Says, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, a man mighty in works and in deed. Words and in deeds. When Moses come down from the mountain in Exodus chapter 34, you'll find that his face shined so brilliantly and so brightly they had to put a veil over it. He didn't realize that until he started coming down and the people couldn't look upon the face of Moses because he'd had a meeting with God on top of the mountain. You know, if you'd have met Moses that morning and said, Moses, why you got on, why you, why you got on the docket today? What's on the itinerary today? And Moses says, well, I got to go meet God on top of the mountain just a little while. Isn't that something? He had a personal encounter. He had a personal meeting with God on top of the mountain. And he had spent 40 days up there without anything to eat or to drink. And he'll hew out those two tables of stone once again. This is the second time. And when Moses comes down the mountain, his face is shining so brilliantly that people can't look on his face. Well, I read over here in Matthew chapter 17 where the Lord Jesus Christ won the mountain of transfiguration. And he had Moses on one side. By the way, Moses who couldn't enter into the land of Canaan, in Matthew chapter 17, he's in the land of Canaan. He'd been dead for hundreds of years, but he appears there along with Elijah in the land of, with Jesus on top of that mountain, the mountain of transfiguration. But the Bible says the face of the Lord Jesus Christ shined as the noonday sun. Face was brilliant. We find in Hebrews chapter 11 where it says that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Rather suffer, he'd rather suffer affliction with the people of God than enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. For he had recompense unto the respect unto the recompense of the reward. In other words, we find here where Moses gave up the treasures of Egypt and went out and became a lowly shepherd in order to suffer affliction with the people of God. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it says, The Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven. It said, For this we know the grace of God, how that he was rich, yet he became poor for our sakes, that we through his poverty might become rich. Jesus left the glory that he had with the Father in heaven and came down here and lived a life of poverty on behalf of the people of God that he came to live a life for and to save them from their sins. Moses was a great deliverer. In fact, in the book of Exodus, the theme of Exodus is deliverance. But Moses delivered a nation of people where Jesus Christ delivered a people out of every nation, kindred and tongue and people. Moses delivered a people without the loss of one across the Red Sea. How many did Jesus die for? I mean, uh, how many did Jesus lose that he died for? Not a one, right? John chapter 10, verse 28, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. I know my sheep. They hear my voice and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all and no man can pluck them out of my Father's hand for I am the Father of one. You got the hand of Christ, the hand of God, and in the hand of Christ, the hand of God, are the people of God, and Jesus Christ said, no man can pluck them out of my hand. That's called eternal security, the preservation of the saints. Not one Israelite was left behind. Well over a million people, perhaps close to two million people, came out of the land of Egypt. And from the youngest to the oldest, not one was left behind. They all came across dry shot across the Red Sea. And when Jesus Christ hung upon the cross and made an offering to the Father, he was taken off that cross, put in a barred tomb, stayed there for three days and three nights, and he was resurrected. And in his resurrection, he became the first fruit of them that slept. And not a single one he represented is going to be left behind. Not a one. In Revelation chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, it says, And they shall sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. There's a song of Moses and a song of the Lamb. And but that song, again, is a song of deliverance. At least 15 or 16 different ways you're going to find where Moses is a picture and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the most revered figures, of course, in Jewish uh, history uh, had his place, but not compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Moses was faithful in all of his house, but the Lord Jesus Christ, the most faithful man who ever walked. We find where Moses was a prophet. And he said, there shall a prophet arise after me to whom you shall give heed to, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a mediator. To show you what kind of character Moses had, on two different occasions, God told Moses, he says, I'm going to wipe these people off the earth. They were murmurers, they were complainers, they were unthankful. He says, I'm going to destroy them all and I'm going to bring a new nation out of you. Both times Moses declined it. Both times he interceded on their behalf, just like the Lord Jesus Christ does. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find where there's one medium between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I'm thankful for a mediator, aren't you? I hope you are thankful today for a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's our advocate. We have an adversary, but we have an advocate in the Savior. And he mediates on our behalf. He stands with the right hand of God, making intercession for us. Tim mentioned Romans 8, 34. 
Who is he that condemned it? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather it's risen again. It's on the right hand of the majesty on high who also maketh intercession for us. No wonder Paul says in Romans chapter 8, we know not how to pray as we ought. You ever have problems praying? I mean, you just feel like you can't get the right words out. You know how you feel, but you just feel so inadequate and you feel like if my prayer is, is answered on the basis of my words to the Savior, they're not going to get answered. I need some help. I need assistance. And that's where the Holy Spirit comes in as our advocate and our mediator, my friends, how God can take our poor, feeble efforts and present them to the Father. And when he does, they're perfect. Reminds me uh, of this story. I always uh, uh, just think about it oftentimes. Where the little, the little girl was in, the, in this real fancy, expensive hotel and they had a very expensive piano. And she didn't know how to play anything. But it was a curiosity to her. She sat on the stool and she began to pluck the keys, making an awful noise, awful sound. And uh, the uppity-ups in the hotel, you know, they didn't like that. They didn't like that awful sound coming from the piano, that little girl. There was somebody just wishing they would stop her from trying to play that piano. Finally, there happened to be a master pianist that was staying there. Well known. He saw the situation. He come and he sat down on the, on the, right beside her, there on the, on the stool. And he took his arms and he put around her and his hands on the keys. He began to play the keys. The next thing you know, there was a melodious sound coming from that piano. And the people stopped and the people listened. That's what Jesus does. Jesus takes our poor, feeble efforts in praying to the Father. And he overrides them. And he takes our poor, feeble efforts that we present to, the, to God, and he takes them, and he presents them to the Father. And when they get to the Father, my friends, they're perfect. <laughs> Aren't you happy about that? Aren't you glad that no matter how weak we are, God is omnipotent? No matter how poor we are, God is all rich, my friends. He owns the entire universe. No matter how confused we might be, we got one that can guide us up safely along the pathway. He can take us through the valley of the shadow of death and get us to the other side. Isn't he a God worth serving? <laughs> Isn't he a God worth making? Whatever effort you made to come here this morning, my friends, it is just pitiful compared to what Jesus did. When Jesus came for us, he came all the way from heaven. I don't know how far that is, but it's a long ways. He came all the way from heaven, knowing ahead of time when he got here to this world, he'd be despised and rejected of men. He'd be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He uh, would be opposed. Uh, he'd be called a blasphemer. Uh, they would spit upon him. They'd buffet him. They'd pluck the hair from his cheeks and they'd open his back uh, by scourging it. And he'd go to the cross and have nails put in his hands and nails in his feet and a sword would pierce his side. He knew all that before he ever came. To me, one of the great miracles of grace is this. Even though God knew every bit of that, God knew uh, what uh, uh, his son was going to face, the son knew what he was going to face. He loved us so much, he came anyway. He just came anyway. I tell you, I just had a wonderful trip over to North Carolina to Andrew Primitive Baptist Church. I grew up in that church. I was taken when I was a baby to that church. 
I was there as a little toddler. I was, uh, I was there uh, as I grew up over the years. Me and Karen joined there even before we were married and baptized there. And then a little later on, feeling a burden to preach, began to speak there and was ordained there. And how good it is to go back there from time to time and visit with some of the most precious people here on this earth. Yes, I've got natural family that's still there. My mother and daddy's passed on to be with the Lord, but my brother and his wife and son and daughter and, and grandchildren are all there. And I'd like to report to you this morning that they are a good, solid, uh, a fruitful band of people over there. And what a blessing it was to be with them one more time. But for the second Sunday in a row, I had to get up at 4.40 in the morning. <laughs> 4.20, by the way. In fact, I just got up at 4 o'clock. I couldn't sleep. Uh, I just couldn't sleep. I, you know, when you got to go to sleep, you need to sleep, you can't sleep. And then when you don't, don't want to sleep, you can't keep your eyes open. That really happens to a lot of people in church, by the way. But anyhow. <laughs> but it was worth it. It was worth it to get up at 4 o'clock this morning and get on a crowded airplane. No empty seats. Being pushed around like cattle. You know why I wanted to get back? I left early enough to get back because I wanted to meet with you. <laughs> I wanted to meet with you. I wanted to worship with you. I wanted to serve God with you. I wanted to meet God in his house with you. And that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 12, Wherefore, seeing we are incapacitated about by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and these sin that does so easily beset us, looking at Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us, he endured the cross and despised the shame. You know why Jesus came? He saw the joy on the other side. He saw the joy of redeeming his people. He saw the joy of justifying them and reconciling them and saving them by his shed blood, saving them by his grace and bringing them all home to glory some sweet day. He saw all that and he was willing to come on down here and experience all the sufferings that he did. It's 10 past 12. Thank you so much for your good patience and your kindness and your love and your charity and your, and your prayers. Um, I'm not a bit hungry but I know that you are.